0: To the book of Malachi. This is message number six, entitled Playing the Percentages. We'll be looking at Malachi chapter three, verses six through twelve. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, ye you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But Ye said, Wherein shall we return? Well, a man robbed God, yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour, out, pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we tend to be experts in what we think we deserve. Uh, We tend to be experts in what it is that we believe that we are owed, what is our due. And we tend to be experts in all of the ways in which we have been slighted, uh, we've been wronged, we've been treated in some way that is less generously than we think we deserve. And if we ever confront someone over this, we can oftentimes be shocked to find out they may actually have some complaints against us. They may may think of some ways that we have failed to treat them or someone else in a way that they deserve. And though we can recognize and remember every detail of the ways that we've been wronged, we're often tone deaf to any way in which we might have possibly wronged someone else. Well, it's similar to God's Message to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Do so you see, Israel had a long list of grievances that accused God of being unfaithful, of not keeping his promises or his word. And when God responded to this slate of charges that they had against him, they were shocked time and again to find themselves indicted on several counts. Now, the fourth conflict in the book of Malachi which begins there in chapter 2, verse 17, going through chapter 3 and verse 5, exposed how that Israel was not ready for the coming of the Lord, which was central to their complaints against God because he had not come. In other words, they had certain expectations for what their future would be like and what it would hold, and they realized they certainly weren't there yet. And so a lot of their complaints against God centered around that fact that these blessings and promises that had been prophesied for generations um, before them had not been realized. But God responds by questioning them if they had considered what the coming of the day of the Lord would mean. In other words, Israel often focused on the promise of divine visitation. And that divine visitation would destroy their enemies, and it would vindicate the nation as God's people. And that certainly seemed to characterize the expectation of the time period that we are in here that's oftentimes referred to as second temple Judaism. Malachi reminded Israel that the future day of the Lord was also a great purging and a great cleansing and a great purifying of Israel with fiery judgment going so far as to show how the wicked among Israel will be cut off in that judgment, and a remnant will be saved to inherit the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as has been prophesied for many centuries leading up to this time. So the question for Israel was whether they were really ready for the day of the Lord to come. They had all these complaints about all these things they think God should do and that he hadn't done, Are you really ready for God to do those things that you are asking him to do? Well, of course, the only hope for Israel will be in repentance and in embracing their Messiah for forgiveness, for salvation, for righteousness, for eternal life, for the land, for the kingdom. That really is their only hope. Now, the fifth conflict of this book, of which there are six in total, the fifth conflict occurs here in the passage that I read moments ago. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God found fault with Israel that they didn't find with themselves. They are accused of robbing God, and they can't seem to be able to account for the charge at all. Now, this conflict does indeed continue from the previous, and there is a consideration of future blessings. So there is a, a connection here of, of judgment to, to blessing in this, and connected with this future day of the Lord. But they complain, essentially, of not being in kingdom conditions. That's what they're complaining about. But they were not willing to meet the kingdom preconditions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So in this passage, we have two primary parts we're going to look at, verses 6 to 9, where we have the charge of Israel robbing God. And in verses 10 to 12, we see the description of Israel returning to him. So let's begin with the first part, where Israel was robbing God, and we'll begin here with verse number six. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Well, accusing God of wrongdoing, accusing God of failing to keep his promises, is to accuse him of changing. It's to accuse God of not being God. Even even if for just a moment, even if just for a temporary space, it's to accuse God to cease being God. And God states plainly at the start of this passage, I change not. God hasn't changed. God will not change. God does not change. He says, I have not changed. So it's as if Israel was questioning, um, saying things like, Has God become unfaithful? Has God changed his mind? Has God chosen another nation? Has God chosen another people to bless? Has God chosen, or or rather, has God's word failed? Has God been unable to do what he has promised? And and on and on and on with those kind of questions that we could go. And of course, the answer to all such questions is no. No. For God to change would be for God to to not be God. I mean, think about what a change would constitute for God. So sometimes we as people change, and we change sometimes negatively, and sometimes we change positively. And of course, the the whole concept and principle of a positive change and a positive growth is really what is inherent to Christianity. Uh, Sometimes I think those of Spurgeon's era like to refer to it as the great change. They're talking about conversion, regeneration, becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ. All that involves change for us, but for God, there, there is no change. In other words, is God going to learn something that he did not know before? Oh, well, I need to change my mind because I had not considered that. Well, of course, that's impossible for God, if, if indeed God is God, as he has revealed himself to be. So... The answer, of course, to any of those kind of complaints is: God unfair? Is God unjust? Is God unloving? Is God unfaithful? Is God's word failed? Is God just changed his mind? Oh no, no! The answer to all those kind of questions is no. It's not possible because God would have to cease, indeed, to be who He is. And you notice the um, all capital letters there. For I am the Lord, L O R D, um, all capital letters there, and that lets you know that that the underlying. Uh, Hebrew word is that is Yahweh, and that is what God has revealed as His name. We have a lot of titles for God that are revealed throughout the Old Testament and even some of those in in the new testament but um, this this word is actually somewhat different. God describes it as his name yahweh um, it's The meaning of the word exactly is a little uncertain, but it does seem to have the idea of self-existence. It it does seem to have the idea, perhaps even of eternity. And you think of how that God um, revealed himself to Moses. I am that I am. And you think about Jesus talking to the Pharisees and, and saying, before Abraham was, I am. And think about all of those tenses and how all of those things um, work out and play out there that, that God is eternally who he is and therefore cannot change and of course does not change it would be a denial of himself he would he would be a a self-contradiction to change so God cannot be different from his word and he says therefore The sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel, is not destroyed or or it it does not cease to be. It does not cease to exist. Now, there are many times in Israel's history that it looks um, as if it would be perfectly justified for them to end as a nation and a people. And there certainly are some nations and and people that, that have been ended throughout history And it certainly looks justifiable that this people would end in history, but that has not happened. It will not happen because God is God and because God does not change. So this verse gives us sort of a transition between these these conflicts. The fact that Israel still exists as a people, though though they're not an independent nation at the time that he's writing to them, is evidence that God doesn't change, that his promises to them will be fulfilled. And it even answers the question of the previous passage. We said, who's going to stand? Who's going to abide the coming of the Lord? Who's going to stand that day of the Lord? Because it's, it's a coming of fiery judgment. Well, Israel will stand. There will be a, a remnant of the nation such that all Israel will be saved, as Paul said in Romans chapter number 11. Verse 7, even from the days of your father's Ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? In some ways, Israel had not changed either. And so it's almost like there's something of a, of a parallel here. God says, I'm the Lord, I don't change. You're the, you're the sons of Jacob, you haven't ceased to be. You're still just like your fathers and as, he, as he goes on. The days of their fathers, that's referred to there. Well, that goes back to the Exodus. That goes back to Sinai. That goes back to um, the old covenant. And if we go back to that scene at Sinai, what's going on? Well, the people were committing idolatry, worshiping this golden calf and committing all these abominable acts at the very base of the mountain while Moses is up top speaking to God. As as God has never spoken to any man, we are told face-to-face. And yet they're at the base of the mountain committing idolatry. After the exodus, after the Red Sea crossing, after the plagues, after all these things that had occurred, their wilderness wanderings and their time in the land is really just a long, sad record of sin and failure on their part. When you read through the books of the kings and the chronicles and you see this long record of all these wicked and abominable kings that ruled over Israel and over over Judah and all the things that took place um um within the nation and and the people again it's just failure after failure and God says here very plainly this this generation is not any different and if you remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees uh, to about the Pharisees and how that they would garnish the tombs of the prophets you know and and, and they would say to themselves You know, had we been alive, you know, we wouldn't have been a part of those that were persecuting and killing the prophets. And of course, Jesus reveals that they they, they're they're in fact worse because they killed the Son of God when he came to them. So this is a this is in a similar way. You're not any better than that generation. Since the time of your fathers, you continue to go away from, to stray out of the path of God's commandments. The point is, this generation that had returned from the exile had not improved. They had been exiled, Jerusalem, the temple, all these things had been destroyed. Why? Because of their sin that they'd been warned about for centuries was going to happen. In fact, Moses warned them that this was going to happen before they even entered into the promised land back in the the books of Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus. So the command here to return refers to the required repentance that is prophesied beginning with Moses. In other words, everything that's, that's being spoken of here is all connected with, with what God has said concerning the nation of Israel all the way back from the very beginning. So when he tells them to return, he's referring back to those passages. So here's just one passage Leviticus chapter 26. Um, I'll read a few verses here uh, verses 38 to 45. And and ye shall perish among the heathen or among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbath while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, When they be in the land of their enemies, in other words, in exile, dispersed, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God, I am the Lord." Now again, this is Leviticus. That's Leviticus chapter number 26. This is Moses on the plains of Moab with that second generation of Israel that had come out of Egypt that are about to enter into the promised land. And he's prophesying, and and of course if you read more of that chapter, he, he, there's a, a number of blessings that are enumerated. If you keep this covenant like you have sworn to keep, then all these blessings are, are going to come upon you. Um, if you break this covenant, then these curses are going to come upon you, all these things that are going to happen, even, even to the exile and their dispersion among the nations. And yet for all that, the Lord says, I'm not going to destroy you utterly. And so here he begins, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, what what is the point for Israel to understand? That they are exactly where God said they would be before their fathers ever even set foot in the promised land. The promised blessings of the kingdom, and if you look at what he says there in Leviticus 26, those promised blessings are not going to come without their repentance. And this continues to be echoed throughout the Old Testament and the prophets. Without their repentance and their embracing of their Messiah through faith, these kingdom blessings are not going to come to them. Now, Israel, of course, as we can see here, continues to be surprised by these charges. Wherein shall we return? In other words, they ask, well, how are are we to return or or, or you might, and you might say, what are, we, what are we returning from? In other words, in all their complaints, they didn't recognize any wrongdoing on their part. They had this long list of grievances against God and all the things that they felt like that he should be doing and the complaints about all the sufferings that they were suffering and yet had never considered that they were in the wrong Well, then comes the charge, verse number 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. So the charge is that Israel was robbing God. Well, of course, they're shocked at such a charge. How How have we robbed you? And he says that they had robbed God in tithes and offerings. Now, tithes and offerings refers to the old covenant law and its requirements for Israel. The tithe refers to the 10th part that was set apart unto the land. And if you look at passages like Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 to 34, you can see a description there of the tithe as the 10th part of the increase of the lands and the herds that was given back to God. So, in other words, the the, the fruit that was produced, um, the the wheat that was and grain and and what have you that was grown so what their fields produced what the trees produced um, what their vines produced all that produce of the lands the increase that was a tenth part was to be given to the lord of all of their flocks and herds and all of their animals and the increase of those flocks and herds all that a tenth part was to be given back to the lord so the tithe would would consist of all of those things so there'd be field the produce of the fields animals um drink, um, various drinks and things, uh, and money in certain situations uh, could include money as well. They were to bring their tithes, and some of their tithes would be used in sacrifices. Uh, Some of them would be set aside for the Levites and for the priests and for the poor among them. Now, offerings, this term that is used here, and and a lot of times you may hear people make a distinction, well, tithes were required and offerings were voluntary, and that's not exactly correct. Um, Tithes were required, um, but offerings were also required. There were some offerings that were voluntary, so to speak, um, that were not mandated, but there were offerings that were mandated as well. Now, tithes, in particular, reflected God's ownership of all things, especially this land promised to Israel and given to them. The tithe was, so in this way, the tithe was something like a rent that was to be paid to God. And to withhold it was to rob God. And you see, it it works both ways. You can steal from someone by taking something away from them that belongs to them. And you can also steal from someone um, by withholding something that is rightfully theirs. And so this is what they were being accused of, robbing from God, because they were not keeping the old covenant laws concerning the tithes and the offerings. Those tithes and offerings were also provision for maintaining the priests and the Levites um, and all of the temple service. Let's look at verse number 9. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. So God explicitly states now, let there be no question. You are under the curse. Let there be no question about that. So passages like Leviticus 26 that we read a portion of, Deuteronomy chapter number 28, outline a number of curses that were promised to come onto Israel for their sin and unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now we can trace their complaints back to these curses that they were evidently under. In other words, it's almost as if God is asking them, "Why are you shocked? Why are you complaining about the things that you are experiencing?" Because these are the very things that God promised would come on you for your faithless actions. So in other words, there is a a connection. God says, you're under the curse. Go back and and look at the curses in the old covenant law that were promised to come on you for sin and, and transgression. You're under the curse. He says, even you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Now the word for nation here, It is goi, and it isn't a singular, and so this is, it's translated nation here. Later it's used in in the plural and translated um, nations, I I believe, later in the passage. But um, here it is, one of those somewhat rare places where this term is used of Israel. It's not, most of the time, it's not used of Israel. And whenever it is used of Israel, it can be put into a few different categories of ways that it's being used. And this particular use would be one that goes along with um, some other Times where this is used, and Israel is being called goy because they're unfaithful. So they're, un, they're indistinguishable from the pagan nations that don't follow the Lord at all, don't even make any pretense of doing so. So, in other words, it's used in, in this particular way, it's used in a, a judgment context. And we, fi- we can find references where this happens in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, and Haggai and here in Malachi, in particular, among the prophets. And so it is a, a judgment reference. And in other words, you, you look like you're indistinguishable from the unbelieving nations around you. And, you and, and you're surprised that you are experiencing these curses that have been promised to come on you. So then we go to the next part in verses 10 to 12, where we see God giving the description of returning to him. Again, just as those passages we read um, in Leviticus, the, but just the same as the passage in, in Deuteronomy, um, but if they return, when they return. So verse number 10, "...bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse." that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So the description of robbing God is followed by a description of returning to him. He tells them to bring the tithes into the storehouse. Now the storehouse refers to an actual storehouse. It was connected um, to the temple. It was a, a place of, of storage, a, a treasury, a depository, whatever you, uh, warehouse. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how you want to think of it, but it was a place where the tithes and offerings that Israel brought were were kept. Now, these were used for a number of different purposes. The, those tithes and offerings were used for the temple services. They were used for temple maintenance. They were used for the living of the priests as well as the Levites, they were also used for the relief of the poor within the community of Israel. And so if you look at a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 to 29, you can read a description of how that these tithes were paid. So Israel was set up, the nation was set up to operate on a seven-year cycle. And they would pay tithes for six years and the seventh year was a sabbatical and then the cycle would begin again. The tithes would be brought to Jerusalem during the pilgrim feasts. So three times out of the year, uh, Passover uh, and tabernacles and and weeks, um, these uh, these pilgrim feasts, they would travel to um, Jerusalem from all the, the various places and they were to bring their tithes with them. And a portion of their tithe, when they would come for these feasts, a portion of their tithe would be eaten um, during the feast, and the rest of it would go to the Levites. So all, of the, all the Levites would receive their portion from the tithes of, of the rest of Israel. And from the, the portion that the Levites received, the Levites then in turn would give the tenth part of that, and that would go to the priests of the Aaronic Line, and that was for their living. Remember, they did not have um, land inheritances among Israel. They were given sort of, of places. There were designated places um, that they were given to live, um, but they weren't given their own inheritance as the other tribes were. And then every third and sixth year in this cycle, the tithes would then be divided between the Levites and the storehouse for the poor. So, there was actually a a place where these things were kept for distribution and for relief of the of the needs of the poor, the widows and the fatherless and, and such that were among the nation of israel and so this is what God is telling them to return to. This is what the old covenant law requires and that is obviously what they were failing to do and it wasn't just them as you look through the history you'll see how in in generations um in israel they failed um to keep this law that god had given them concerning tithes and offerings as well as many other things as well and then god challenges them here in verse number 10 he says you you return to this and then you test or prove me by returning to this in other words, if they were completely faithful to the covenant, then the blessings of the covenant would be poured out on them such that the blessings could not be contained. So again, if we think back to those passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where all those curses are enumerated, those passages are also preceded um, by all of these different blessings that are enumerated that, that they would experience if they keep his covenant. Verse number 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. So as as he proceeds in these next two verses, he's elaborating these blessings that are going to come upon. If you return, then these blessings are those that will come upon you. And essentially, what he's saying is is that the curses that you are under will be reversed, the curses will be reversed, and the blessings will be restored he says he says if you don't you know if you don't think so, then you just you try me on this, you test me on this, you prove me on this, and see if this is not what will happen. Of course, we know they they do fail they don't they don't test God um, on that because they do fail in their in their faithfulness. so he talks about the devourer, which um, is uh again this is part of the curse that he would send um he would send the animals and and the insects the locusts and whatever that they would eat up um, their fields and eat up their harvest and destroy their harvest and in other words he he part of the curses was that he was going to send. Um, you know these blights and all these things that were that were going to destroy their harvest that was going to um, keep them from the abundance and the prosperity that was given in the blessings but he's saying that if if you do indeed return he says I'll rebuke in other words I will I will stop I will reverse these curses such that your harvest will come forth and will be plentiful and let me get to verse number 12. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, here we see goyim that is used, and it is in the plural, and it's translated nations here in verse 12. And it refers to non-Israelite nations, which is most of of the time the way that this word is used. Uh, When you read in the King James, the word is oftentimes translated heathen. Um, but really, it is nations. Uh, it is sometimes, like here, translated nations, uh, and that is the, the meaning of the term. Now, what he's saying is, is that in the time of that blessing, if, if you return, in the time of that blessing, the nations will no longer be persecuting them, no longer be oppressing Israel. Remember, um, remember how a part of the curses that you read about is that he would, he would disperse them into all of these enemy nations' lands and, and they're going to be oppressed and persecuted and, and fought against and all, all of these sort of things. They're not going to find rest as they are dispersed um, among the nations of the world. But this time, this, ver- this will be reversed, and the nations, it says, rather, will call you blessed. They will recognize Israel, and they'll recognize Israel's God, and they'll recognize Israel's blessings. Now, these blessings describe the promised kingdom blessings to Israel, which will not ultimately be fulfilled through the old covenant, but in fact through the new covenant. And again, that it brings them it brings them back into. Um, the, the, the old problem. As, and when you read the book of Deuteronomy in particular, it even comes out in Leviticus some, but when you read the book of Deuteronomy, the, the problem is identified. So God has made this old, this covenant that he calls this old covenant, that he made his old covenant at Sinai. He's made this covenant with them, and he's given them this law and 613 commandments, and he's, all of these things. And Moses is, is telling them, before they ever even go into the land, he says, you're not going to keep it. You're not going to keep it. And, and the book of Deuteronomy identifies the problem. The problem is, is not the nations in the land of Canaan that hate Israel, although that, that, that is true. That's not the problem. The problem is their hearts. Their hearts are not right. He calls them uncircumcised. Their hearts are not right. They need new hearts. And there is simply no provision in the old covenant for them to have new hearts no provision whatsoever so even when the lord is saying this return and you're going to experience these blessings all these things you're complaining about well no problem just keep the covenant just like your father swore that they would return and of course we know that they don't and they won't and they never will but how will those blessings be realized well those blessings will be realized one day And in connection with the coming day of the Lord, those blessings are going to be realized through the new covenant and not through the old. So we do have to read the Bible carefully when we are reading it. We we want to faithfully apply the Bible. Now, we cannot read this passage as promising us health and wealth and prosperity if we just give God 10% or more of our income. And if you've never heard it preached that way, I, I certainly have. And I've heard it referred to that way, particularly verse number 10 is referred to. What all this other stuff has to do with anything, nobody seems to know. But, but look what God says here. You, you, you bring the tithes in and I'll pour out blessings on you and you won't be able to contain it. Well, it seems like he said a lot more than just that. And he did. So we have to read The Bible in its context. We have to understand its connections with other parts of the scripture and what is being spoken about. So these blessings are only going to come to Israel by God's grace through faith and of course they'll never be able to keep the old covenant law and inherit those blessings and that is why they must repent and return to the Lord and embrace their Messiah by faith and God's blessings will come on them through the new covenant to fulfill his covenants with Abraham and David. So when we think about application though I mean we're not we're not Israel the church today is not the storehouse that's being talked about here in Malachi 3 though you may have heard that and I've certainly have heard that a number of times but that's actually what is sometimes referred to as replacement theology or supersessionist theology or fulfillment theology. They've got a, a bunch of ways that they like to talk about it where they basically are saying that God is, is finished with Israel and, and rather uh, you know, the, the Gentiles form a new Israel or, or something of, of like that, but that is, that is not um, what the Bible teaches at all. So the the church is not the storehouse, and and we're not being told to tithe our animals and and such. But what's the principle here? The principle of the tithe, the principle of it, was to recognize God's ownership, that really everything belongs to him. There's not anything that I can call my own. And you say, well, wait a minute, I can call sin my own. And that's certainly true. But if you're saved, he took that on himself too. So that's not even yours anymore. So nothing that we have can we claim to own outright. It all belongs to God. So God's ownership, God's sovereign distribution of everything, giving it to whom he will, so the, in, in principle, the principal part of the tithe is recognizing that, that everything is, is God's, and it's acknowledging this, giving him praise and thanksgiving for the blessings that he has bestowed. Now, there is a principle of, of giving to the Lord that doesn't in, in, uh, in, you know, endure uh, into the New Testament and, and such. And, and we, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, when we was going through a systematic study, we talked about tithing in the church and all that, all that kind of stuff today. So I'm not going to rehash all that. But I want us to understand the principle here. And giving is an act of obedience, and it's an act of faith. It's it's an act of of trust. I mean, all these things were true in principle with the tithe in Israel and, and are still true to us today. But, of course, just as Israel could not purchase those blessings from God Neither can we. We cannot purchase God's blessings. We can't purchase prosperity. We can't purchase eternal life. We, we can't purchase salvation. No, those things come by grace, through faith, alone. And then we return to the Lord out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving and ultimately this is what israel is being recalled is being called to because they need to repent and still do as a nation you remember the passage in leviticus 26 you repent of your iniquity and the iniquities of your fathers and i will remember my covenant with abraham isaac and jacob to give you the land